Welcome to season two of Sound Lore, the official podcast of Indiana University's Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology, where we sound off about recent scholarship, ideas, and current happenings from the fine folks who've crossed paths with our department. I am David McDonald. And I'm Jeremy Reed. We've got a fantastic season of episodes planned for you. You'll be hearing from colleagues past and present, getting under the hood discussions of recent publications, revisiting department colloquia, and much more. This podcast is produced by the department for the department. If you have ideas for future episodes, have music you want to contribute, or just want to tell us what a great job we're doing, then drop us a line or come knock on our doors. Kicking off the season is an interview between current PhD candidate Kennedy Johnson, ethnomusicology graduate student Joe Johnson, and IU alumna Dr. Fridara Hadley to discuss Dr. Hadley's life and work, the various meanings of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and the experience of Black womanhood in the academy and beyond. Before we let Kennedy introduce Dr. Hadley, I just want to say thank you for supporting and listening to this podcast. If an ethnomusicologist makes a sound and there isn't a folklorist to index it, did it really happen? For fewer jokes and more content, tune in this semester for a new season of Soundboard. Hi, I'm Fredera Hadley. Hi, I'm Joe Johnson. Hi, I'm Kennedy Johnson. Dr. Fredera Hadley is a professor of ethnomusicology within Juilliard's music history department. Uh, she is a fellow Southerner. Uh, she is from West Palm Beach, Florida, uh, received her undergraduate degree from Florida A&M uh, University. She got her MA in African American Studies from Clark Atlanta University uh, and her PhD from this department, the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology at Indiana University. Uh, Dr. Hatley's work looks at the ways in which uh, folks of African descent use music genres to construct and maintain community. Her ongoing projects currently look at one, the musical impact of HBCUs or historically black colleges and universities, and two, the life and work of one of the earliest black women musicologists, Shirley Graham Du Bois. Additionally, her commentary is featured in a number of documentaries, most recently PBS's The Black Church uh, that was hosted uh, by Henry Louis Gates. So we're gonna to talk to you about a little bit of that, which I feel like will be a cool conversation. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Hadley. So just to start off the conversation, what was the role of the Black church in your life growing up? And how did these experiences shape your relationship to music and your present day research? That is, thanks for that question. Um, I love it. We dove like right into the heart of the thing. That's great. Um, you know, I like to say I was I was born on a Sunday, right? And that was probably the one Sunday that year that my parents didn't go to church, right? <laughs> um, and um, I grew up in a Baptist church, a Black Missionary Baptist Church, St. James Missionary Baptist Church in Riviera Beach, Florida, um, right outside my hometown of West Palm Beach, Florida. Um, and on my father's side, I'm the daughter and the granddaughter of Baptist deacons. On my mother's side, I'm the granddaughter of um, an ordained minister. My grandmother was Reverend Mary L. Shannon um, in the Free Will Baptist uh, denomination. My mother, longtime head of Christian education in Baptist churches, really involved. She's an academic as well, and so she used all of that training that a PhD give, gives you and teaching and employed it in the church as well. Um, and my mother's father um, sang in quartets. He was a tenor and, and sang in gospel quartets. And so uh, 
if if as much as something can be in our spiritual DNA, the church was there. Um, and then I grew up singing in um, St. James Missionary Baptist Church Choir. I grew up listening to gospel radio. I grew up going to hear people like Shirley Caesar or John P. Key live and in person when they would come through our town. I grew up listening to, uh, you know, hearing great preachers in person um, coming through doing different revivals. Uh, and so that experience is a foundational one in my actual life. Um, in my, as we say in ethnomusicology, in my lived experience, right? Uh, and so that's just always going to be there. And, you know, I think one of the things that's been fascinating about my journey as an ethnomusicologist is growing up in the 80s and 90s, Black in the 80s and 90s with just a range of musical experiences, all of them have found a home in my teaching or scholarship or commentary or one of those places. And it makes sense that the Black church, uh, one that is such an enduring institution, uh, takes up a lot of necessary bandwidth too. And so one of the things that I think a lot about in, in teaching courses, survey courses on African-American music and whatnot, is how the church has been a wellspring of so much of American popular music, but that the black church, what that means and suggests to me, well, let me add this too. My whole teaching career has been in conservatories. So that's really important because that means that I primarily have taught musicians, um, both classical and jazz musicians in my teaching career. And that path is a little unusual for ethnomusicologists. And that is a huge part of why things have gone the way that they have for me. But in teaching musicians and thinking about that um, and what a conservatory sort of represents culturally and ideologically, then it became really important to me to delve into the pedagogy of, of Black church music and thinking about how, because a lot of the language historically about gospel music and even black music in general, it, it, it credits natural talent and ability of which that's obviously a key ingredient, but doesn't so much credit how much training and skill and how much people theorize about their own performance, even in a church setting. So last year, Julia taught a graduate course call the church as a conservatory of black music, just to really kind of set that up and think about that and explore that. And thanks to the work of people like Melanie Burnham, uh, Alicia Lola Jones, Brigida Johnson, um, Tyron Cooper, lots of folks associated with IU. There is literature and, um, and other scholars like uh, Bernice Johnson Regan and, and Horace Boyer, folks like that. There is actually lots of scholarship to kind of build that out. And so, uh, and that gave me the opportunity to really retrace things that I knew as a cultural bearer or, or tradition bearer, but like really think through that. Like what is actually happening when I sing a solo and Ms. Johnson would be like, you sound like you singing in your head and not in your spirit and your body. Like that's, that's tutelage, right? That's, that's guidance and an understanding of what the music is supposed to sound like, right? Mm -hmm. And so not being dismissive of those kinds of things and really kind of just building that out into how these traditions get trans, trans, um, 
transferred from one generation to the next. Uh, and then when the Black Church documentary came along, that was really exciting because again, it allowed me to take all of these things that I've experienced and thought about now as a scholar and come in both as a, as a commenter um, and as a consultant, like working as it was being conceived and shot and thinking about the role of music in telling this story about the black church and how music is employed, which genres are appropriate for which eras, all of that, as well as um, um, being fortunate to lend some words directly to it. So, you know, the black church is WB Du Bois talked about how it's the center of social life in black communities and the soul of black folks. And we see in the 21st century that's being challenged a bit for lots of different reasons, but it still is a seminal institution in talking about blackness, black people and how black communities function. Well, thank you so much. I have a lot of questions uh, for you now. One of them, uh, so Dr. Alicia Jones, so one of the things we discuss is uh, how black genius or black intellect, uh, black talent is illegible. And it's also like a lot of times it's thought of this thing as you were saying that it's only natural and there's not more training after that. Um, so I um, obviously, yeah, we're friends on Facebook. I see the work that you're doing at Juilliard and it seems that uh, and I've seen you present at SEM, it seems like you're really trying to draw attention to or make this Black intellect, this Black music tradition legible to people um, in the form of like highlighting people like Du Bois, like as the one of the first uh, musicologists to like say like this lineage isn't new necessarily. Mm -hmm. uh, so I wonder if you can speak on a little bit of your experience teaching these types of things or speak a little bit more on your experience teaching these types of things at conservatories. Yeah, it's fascinating. And so the work that I do around Shirley Graham Du Bois, the way that I think about genius, and you're right in trying to make Black genius legible. Um, I like that framing of illegible and legible comes directly out of teaching musicians. Pedagogy and scholarship are all deeply intertwined for me. And so I used to, at, at Oberlin and now at Juilliard, I teach a year-long um, survey of African-American music. And somewhere in the second semester, I would do a more gender-oriented take on whatever genre we were looking or whatever era we were looking at. Then I taught what mostly white men in my classes, right? And so I would just, I just got into this habit of doing this exercise with them of name musical geniuses, just and and this would be open to everybody, right? Just name musical geniuses. Who comes to mind when we think of musical geniuses? And I did this for years, and it was always overwhelmingly male, right? Um, you would get a rotation. Aretha Franklin would always make an appearance. I feel like very often Nina Simone would as well, and those were the only two women you could kind of bank on showing up. And then maybe there would be some others kind of mixed in. And the men would mostly be instrumentalists, but there would be few women who were in primarily instrumentalists, right? And so that was just really fascinating to me. Um, and, and I would point it out to them after the fact, right? Like how, we, you know, this was open opportunity. Anybody could throw out a name. I didn't rule any out, whatever the case may be. But it always 
ended up the same. And so that was a real clear demonstration to me. And who knows if the makeup of the class had been different, the results might've been different, right? But it, it demonstrated this correlation between genius and masculinity, right? Um, and it, even more than race, it was really the math, because there were lots of black men on the board, but it was really the gender piece that was so striking to me. And out of that came two trains of thought, and I'll get to Shirley Greer the boys in a minute, but really just thinking about what we mean when we say genius, what we're trying to point to when we say genius, why those distinctions matter. And something else that happened in the midst of all of that, Beyonce's Lemonade came out. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can't, I think that was like 2015, 2016, maybe 2016. Mm -hmm. um, and everybody was really taken by it. It was it's for understandable reasons. But this argument kept percolating about, some people would call her a genius and people would argue why she can't be a genius, right? Like why she is disqualified from genius. Like, um, and the arguments ranged from she's too collaborative or she's too pretty, right? Or she's like, or it's too pop, like she lives in pop music, right? So therefore, and that was, that was really interesting to me. I felt like that said a lot about, again, how we, um, either accord or uh, disqualify somebody from being able to be called genius. And so what helped me work through that was Angela Davis's work um, and Farrah Jasmine Griffin's work on um, blues singers and jazz musicians, um, uh, Angela Davis's blues legacies, which she talks about Gertrude Ma Rainey, Bessie Smith and um, Billie Holiday and Farrah Jasmine Griffin's If You Can't Be Free, Be a Mystery, those books, where they really are looking at not only the lives and the careers of these Black women, but what these Black, what their artistry did for their audiences of Black women and how Black women were interpreting them and engaging with their work. And I found that liberating. <laughs> and so, you know, there was a phase where I was doing lots of presenting about Beyonce, not so much to argue for or against genius, but to say one of the things that was really fascinating about Lemonade is how resonant it was with Black women. And I think that we are often dismissive of women audiences in general when it comes to music and Black women audiences specifically. And so that allowed me space to really talk about what genius means in the context of Black women's musical performance and reception, right? So when we get to, when I uh, started working with Shirley Graham Du Bois's work, again, which comes because she is an alumna of Oberlin College and Conservatory. And I wanted to do a lecture in class that really excavated this rich history of black composers and musicians who have come through that conservatory. And I went to the archives and I realized you know, in 1934, she's turning down a job in DC because she wants to get, no, 1933, because she wants to earn a master's degree because she says the Negro race needs this trained musicologist. And she claims that title for herself and writes this really provocative and important master's thesis in 1934, the survival of Africanisms and modern music. Um, I already now have a way to kind of set up everything that she's doing and composing her opera Tom Tom in 1932 and then writing this thesis in 1934 and 
and the way that she is very deliberately trying to communicate mostly with black people and black audiences in her opera like that is that is who she's 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 going back to the black church she's turning to black church choirs to fill out the chorus in her opera is community engagement before we have that term right um to really uh make it a part of the community as opposed to just this thing that she sort of drops in on the community. And even in her master's thesis, there's an argument that she is an ethnomusicologist because she wants to deeply analyze and engage the work of the, the symphonies of Florence Price, William Dawson, and William Grant Still, all of whom had their premieres of their symphonies with major orchestras in that same period. But rather than just looking at the scores and going to the performances and talking about them, she interviews each one of them to talk about their take on their thesis, on their, on their symphonies again, situating them as not, not only Black composers, but really seminal genius-like figures in the idioms in which they're working. And so all of that just, like I said, it just gave me more room and I guess liberated me from how we often promote genius in this society. And I had come to internalize it right as 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 and and the mythology of of genius quite honestly we you see it all through classical music the singular brilliant composer right who does it all on their own doesn't need help from anybody and and allowed me to see genius as something that is deeply can be deeply collaborative um deeply uh um entrenched and steeped and the collective and not the solitary. And that's been a very rewarding um, thought line to follow. Yeah, I feel like that definition of genius as being singular is the exact opposite of how black community works, right? Because I feel like we hold each other um, and it's like, what is it, it takes a village? Like I very much learned the flute um, from multiple different people. Like I learned it from a flute teacher, yes. I learned it from my band director who was a flute teacher. I learned it from uh, my flute teacher in college. And so it's like my, my mom helped me and it was like all of these different things. But it's like, yeah, it, 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 I definitely internalized that whole thing. Like if I'm not doing it by myself, then I am not worthy of that title. And I feel like it's because genius, the definition that we all think of in this society uh, does not account for how different communities um, learn. And the truth is, most of them didn't do it by themselves either. It's just the mythology that we spin around them. They have assistants, they have uh, wives and partners who are more than just wives, but are deep collaborators in you know, whatever arena we may be discussing. And so um, it, it, it is a myth that entraps men very often as well. And so, you know, what I'd like for us to just be more honest about how, how things get done in general, but even more so than that, um, acknowledging the ways in which what women bring to the table and very often black women is right at the center of what we mean when we say the word genius. Oh yes, and also thinking about genius, because my undergraduate training was primarily contemporary art music. And there are many, many great conversations going on about diversity, equity, and inclusion, whatever that means anymore. Um, when it comes to composer diversity and repertoire that's being performed um, in the classical music sphere. So how how have you have you had to navigate that at all working at Oberlin or at Juilliard um, when it comes to thinking about how 
the conservatories program music to celebrate different types of genius, both classically and contemporarily. Has that ever been a conversation that you've had to? Yep. <laughs> definitely, 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 definitely. You know, just recently we, we got the verdict of the police officer who killed George Floyd, right? George Floyd was killed May 25th, 2020. And it is because of the black community's response and then eventually America's and, and the world's response to that horrific video that lots of conversations become more intensified about race and inclusion and all those kinds of things across society. And performing arts institutions, conservatories are a part of that, right? A part of that, um, that ecosystem. And so at Juilliard, the conversation became about how do we then um, look at repertoire? And, you know, Juilliard is, is, is an institution that is a pace setter institution in that way and understands that adjustments that it makes or shifts that it makes will likely fan out to lots of other conservatories and schools of music. And I will say that Juilliard has had a longstanding relationship with Sphinx organization as well, like a deeply uh, committed partnership with Sphinx, which I think is really important. But out of that, uh, we had lots of conversations about then how do we, what does that kind of modeling look like if you want to have um, a representative canon, if you want to have representative programming, um, what does that look like? What could that look like? The thing about art music and classical music is that it's repetition that canonizes something. It is the fact that people are playing it and hearing it that helps it to become a part of the music that is taught, the music required for auditions and competitions and all of that. And so, you know, we took a full view of all of those different things to figure out how can we do better in that regard at all of those different nodes. And so I wrote a piece called Honoring um, the Legacy of Black Classical Composers in which I talk about, yes, Black composers, <laughs> obviously, both uh, uh, living and, and past but also bringing it back to the community part and to Kennedy, what you were talking about in terms of all of the ways that you learned flute. In the absence of predominantly white institutions engaging in black classical music, uh, black classical music has been nurtured and carried forward by a cadre of black institutions. Like people have formed, you know, um, uh, uh, chamber groups churches have hosted recitals, fraternities and sororities have given commissions to composers or hosted recitals. Um, HBCUs are absolutely huge in this landscape as a place where Black composers and Black uh, music faculty um, can work, right, and training generations of musicians. And so what is really important to me as we continue to make this necessary push towards um, deeper integration in, in, in classical music is that it doesn't become a process of extraction or poaching, but we bring along those communities and those institutions that make that music possible, if that makes sense. Denise Graves 
the, the incredible um, mezzo-soprano Denise Graves is currently involved in a project to bring more attention to the National Negro Opera Company, which was founded in 1941 by Mary Cardwell uh, Dawson in Pittsburgh. And that building is still there. And so, you know, when we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, it also points to institutional support for initiatives like that that are acknowledging that long, deep involvement of Black people in classical music and help. And what she wants to do is help to make that a hub again for arts music, art music and um, um, arts in that community. And so, you know, I always preface it and I say, if we are serious, if we are serious as institutions, these are the things that we will take seriously and we will, we will get involved in. And I think, if we are serious, it will also inform our community engagement methods to be more deeply collaborative and not this assumption that there is no legacy of classical music in this black or brown community, but rather understanding what the legacy of classical music is in that community and tapping into that. There are always black music teachers. There are always churches that are hosting recitals or, um, or if you're talking about jazz, doing jazz vespers um, services and things like that. But it takes an ethnographic sort of bent to understand what the engagement is already on the ground and how much more meaningful is it if you then come and say, hey, we wanna connect with you rather than assuming that nothing is there, right? And you have to then, that's far more colonialist. Like we have to bring this thing to you because surely there is nothing there, right? All you have is hip hop or bachata or whatever the case may be, right? Um, but that's a far more nuanced approach. And so um, those are in general, like my thoughts as I've been asked about that in different settings. That, that's always what I come back to. If we are serious, it will be more than a, moment of tokenism, but it will be a, a deep moment of collaboration and um, integration and exchange, honestly, of um, artistry, music, and ideas. It seems that your training as an ethnomusicologist allows you to think about that type of stuff, like how are we missing out on how it looks different um, in different communities um, and how uh, we need to not assume that something is missing, but how are we missing it as the researchers? But Joe, go ahead. Yeah. Well, yeah, th th thank you for that. Um, this is also reminding me of, a I wasn't recently in a panel discussion. I think it was hosted by UCLA. Don't quote me on that. Um, but uh, Chris Jenkins from Oberlin Conservatory was presenting on there. And he was speaking about um, the whole conversation about bringing Blackness into Western art music. Um, or bringing Western art music into Blackness um, creates, it, it relies on this assumption that Western art music is also the superior type of music. And he suggested, which I thought was very wonderful, but also maybe too radical, that um, in order to really have, as you said, exchange between different types of musical forms, it requires us to reevaluate um, what we see as good and what we see as quality music when it comes to what we're teaching through our pedagogy and what we're learning and what we're looking to get out of our conservatory training, which I thought was such um, an incredibly powerful point, which I think relates very well to this. But then this also makes me think, I, I don't know if this is too much of a, of a gear shift, about how different this conversation is 
from the types of conversations that we have in ethnomusicological training, specifically here at Indiana University. And I'm just wondering, like, how did that, how did your training here relate to what you're doing working at conservatories? How was that transition from Indiana University in a non-conservatory ethnomusicological environment into Oberlin Conservatory or um, the Juilliard School? Um, what was that experience and what, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> Another really good question. First of all, Chris Jenkins is the homie. We worked together very closely when we were both at Oberlin. So I'm glad you got a chance to, to hear from him and, and connect with him. So to your, uh, your, your question though, so there are a few things. Um, one, I would say that the fundamentals of how I learned to do ethnography um, have been invaluable to me on a very surface level, just awareness of what ethnography can teach us and show me what I don't know, right? And I say that because I don't know if someone said this to me explicitly when I was at IU or if I just got this from someplace that um, as an ethnomusicologist, you'll never work in the conservatory, right? Like I just had that in my head someplace. And so I think it's just hilarious that I've only ever worked in conservatories at this point. And I don't know what I thought I would end up doing or where I thought I would end up post-graduate school, but um, not conservatories, not only because of that, but because I'm one of those people who ended up leaving classical music because I was burnt out on the whiteness of the classical spaces in which I operated. Um, growing up in West Palm Beach, we, we did not have a Sphinx yet. And I went to really white art schools from seventh grade to 12th grade. And um, I was exhausted and not so much from the, the practicing and the playing and the juries and the competition, not so much from that, but just the sheer exhaustion of being like the, the lone black kid in, in those spaces. And I had a black piano teacher. I was a pianist and violist. And um, uh, I think a lot about how different my relationship as a musician would have been to classical music if I had gotten to learn Florence Price's Fantasy Negre, right? Um, it wasn't until I got to FAMU that I got to start, and I had um, another piano teacher, Dr. Mary Roberts, who's still with us and amazing, um, that I got to start playing like Samuel Coldridge Taylor. And like, I started to know that Black composers were even a thing. But by that point, I was like, I'll just keep playing for my own interest and edification. But like, I'm good on that whole, I chose FAMU, a historically black college, because I was tired of whiteness, right? Like all of that is connected for me. So when I got to IU and um, I got to the IU in 06 and I was one who is black American and knew that I wanted to do research connected to black American communities. And that's when we were just really starting to get into what it would be like to do ethnography in your own community. Like you had more people starting to do that. The prevailing assumption was still that you were going out to research a community or um, a culture to which you did not belong, right? But in some ways that ended up, although that was challenging for me trying to sort through what my own dissertation project was gonna look like, it actually came back around and was useful when I found myself in this conservatory, like, wow, 
I teach in the conservatory. This is the last place I thought I would be given, you know, sort of my complicated relationship as a participant in a, in classical music, right? Um, but that training helped me to think about that job kind of ethnographically, like figure out um, where am I and 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 how does this now work from the inside and how do I bring what I do and what I think is important um, to students. You know, it's funny, I'm just now kind of coming back to doing ethnographic work again as I get deeper with the Shirley Graham Du Bois work um, and deeper again, preparing for my book on um, the musical world making of HBCUs, uh, really fleshing that out is bringing me back to ethnography. But I find that it's been a really important balance to keep me from slipping into some of those kind of colonial extractionist views that can be endemic to academia in general and conservatories in particular. It's been a really important balance in that way because as you move through your career, it's very easy to become like, yes, I am the expert on this and da 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 da. But one of the things I think ethnography does is, is that checks and balance, like not just extracting the information you need from your community, from the community to write whatever document, whether it's a dissertation, an article, or a book, but that ongoing return and engagement and relationship with the community and thinking about what do you need from me, right? What can I do that's of service to you, right? Because they could, the folks that I work with will be absolutely fine if they never talk to me about anything, right? But but what does that reciprocity look like? And 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 so, for me, the the training that I got in ethnography specifically helps me to always keep that in view and make sure that I never get too far away from people and. I think for me too, that's also why it's important to me to do so many public facing things, whether that's public writing or commentary, because it allows me to, everybody can't take my class at Juilliard. That's just what that is. Everybody can't take somebody's class at IU or Oberlin, wherever else. But in these other types of projects, people get to see it and weigh in and say, yes, I agree or not. <laughs> That's not quite it, sis. You know, whatever the case may be, they get to have their say. And I think that that's really important, right? I feel like that also keeps me honest and keeps me in touch with um, where the people are, where the community is as well. Did that answer your question? Yeah, no, that did. Thank you so much. And I, um, I'll let Kennedy ask the next question, but um, just very quickly, I, I can very much relate to your experience um, existing within white music schools so much because my undergraduate training was in classical saxophone, which is an interesting um, world to be in. I, I guess I can share that frustration of the overwhelming whiteness of the situation. Yeah, I can also share that <laughs> frustration. <laughs> it's, it's frustrating, like being in love with classical music, uh, but not being yourself represented. Um, I don't think it was until I was in undergrad, or I guess like I did see myself represented. I should like make an amendment. I saw myself represented K through 12 um, mm -hmm. because I went to, um, I guess they weren't predominantly black schools, but uh, the bands were for some reason. Um, so like in my high school band was HBCU style because my band director was from 
Thune Cookman, so she wouldn't have anything else. Um, and so, but then when I went to undergrad, it was just a culture shock of some sorts where I did not see myself represented. Um, so yeah, I get that. Uh, but I was going to actually ask you, and I'm glad you brought this up, the a role of public facing work in your own um, work and like how that holds you uh, uh, accountable to your community. I was wondering how do you um, balance, I suppose, public facing work with your uh, academic <laughs> or academic or institutional work, if you could speak to that. That's a great question too. Um, do I balance it? Sometimes I balance it, right? Um, and let me say this again, I give, I give Portia Mosby a lot of credit because while I was at IU, we took a public sector class, right? It was a class where we workshopped what does ethnomusicology look like in the public sector? This was before we had terms like applied ethnomusicology and whatnot, because she is one who has always done a lot of public sector work and academic work as well. And so um, uh, the seeds again were set there and she was a great model as, I don't know how she did all the things that she did really at IU. It's exhausting to think about. She had like soul review and started AAAMC and teaching and very active at SEM and doing stuff with the Smithsonian and all of that. So um, I'm not there, but <laughs> you know, um, that to say, you know, she was the first model that I had of how, I don't wanna say we must because we're black, but it is, it is, I think it is more, even more important, right? To um, not let academia steal us away, if you will, right? Like I understood that very deeply. And so um, normally I would, the last year has been um, a pretty intense one. And so this past year, everybody wants to talk to the black scholar about the black things. And so this, this last year has been like really, really intense in that sort of public facing way. But it is important to me, um, well, I'll say it this way. It is the deep thinking, the research, the academic writing, the presenting um, at academic conferences and the response that in the dialogue that comes from that, that is the wellspring for me for the public facing things, right? Um, I would say the deep academic work alongside the pedagogical work that fuels the public facing for me. For me, if I were only doing the public facing things without doing the academic and uh, the pedagogical things, I worry that, you know, the words might become empty, right? Like, I'll be honest, it's easy, you know, everybody, we live in a world where everybody's searching for content, everybody has a podcast, we're doing one right now, everybody has an internet show, everybody's producing a documentary, so it's really easy to just get into the kind of hamster wheel of doing those things. But I do think deeply about, one, am I the right person to do this, whatever this thing, the ask is, am I actually the right person to do that, right? Um, and, and do I have something of use or of merit to say to it? So for instance, 
um, Vox Media does this show called Earworm, which comes on YouTube and Facebook. Yeah. And um, they just started their latest season. And I, I got to work on an episode um, about Quiet Storm Radio with R&B jams and slow jams, which I love with my whole soul. Um, but it is important to me to always bring to that conversation the same rigor that I would to a journal article. And the only reason I could do that in that in that particular project is because it actually goes back to my dissertation research where I was talking about class a whole lot. And so that gave me something to sort of build on and to talk about um, in addition to other things and, in, in, you know, in, on a subject that people think oh, it's just pop music. So you can just kind of talk off your head about what you like. Oh, I love Luther. I love Anita Baker. But when people look for ethnomusicologists, they're looking for something beyond that, right? Um, that's fine too. I espouse my love for Anita Baker if you see that video. But I also like, um, it was important to me to, to add that deeper level of context to help understand why this format of radio was so enduring and so important. And so that doesn't come by just cramming and reading a few Wikipedia articles before somebody hits record. That comes from the deep, um, in best case scenario in graduate school, the deep way that you're taught to think about things and put together complex ideas and evaluate sources to come to some thoughtful conclusion about them, right? Um, and, and, and so they're relational to me. Um, and I go through seasons where I'm doing more of one and less of the other. That's how I kind of think about it. I was just going to say thank you for bringing up, uh, cause, uh, Joe and I were talking yesterday, but I was wondering what a Dr. Moltzky's, um, legacy had, um, as a, um, an impact on you or what was the impact of her legacy on you? Because yeah, she did a lot of institution building <laughs> and a lot of like, if it's not there, I'm going to build it. Um, and so I feel like you're kind of doing similar things with uh, changing the ways in which we think about Black composers. Yeah, no, that's a great thing to think about when we're thinking about negotiating our public work versus our academic work. But something that I've also been constantly thinking about in forming my research and my career is how to also make all of this work toward getting tenure, because that's a complication. I know that, cause I know that in some places... Um, you have to just write books to get tenure, really. And then in other places, there's a combination of books and articles and teaching and other program building. And then how does your public work fit into helping your career advance as an academic as well as a public, like, ethnomusicologist? I think that tenure question is, in a lot of ways, the question. And what I would say about that is you have to be really honest with yourself about what you want out of your career. And... You mentioned Dr. Mossby Kennedy, and one of the things Dr. Mossby has said to me repeatedly over the years, she was just like, you know, she she finished in Wisconsin. She the only job she ever had was at IU, and she did an extraordinary job at IU. And she was just like, I don't think that kind of career is possible anymore. Like that's just not where the world is, right? Um, and so for me. Where I ultimately landed is I, I took a job at Juilliard where there are there is no tenure, right? It's a conservatory and I teach in the music history department and there isn't tenure. You you do kind of contract renewals and, and, and all of that. And also it's a place that um, because it is so centered on performance, I think, and 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 sort of 
uh, highly visible performance, we should say. Um, they, they are more understanding of public facing things and get excited about that because it then sort of points back to the institution. And so that was a good, um, that's a good alignment for me. Um, even though the book is still coming um, because that also is important to me. And because I know that there is no book that starts to put together and acknowledge the musical impact and the, um, um, the world of music making that happens at HBCUs. And that is too sacred to me to not write about, right? Um, that that's still happening, right? Uh, my engagement with SEM and other scholarly societies happens because I think that is important for you all who are the next generation of those things. And I still get so much edification of that uh, from that. Um, and that is a way for me to remain academically accountable as I work on the Shirley Graham Du Bois project, which is taking me into territories that I don't know so well. And so for me, the solution was, okay, I'm at an institution that doesn't do tenure processes, that's actually okay for me, right? Um, I, I don't feel uh, any kind of less than because of that. And I say that to just say that, what I said in the beginning, just being really sincere about yourself, with yourself about what you actually want out of your career, because you're the one who's gonna have to do that work, whatever it is you, or if you start something, you're like, I thought I really wanted to do this, maybe not so much. And you have lots of people now who finish their PhDs and don't go into academia at all or take a job um, with a museum or take a job with some other public facing institution. They just adjunct. They're like, that's all the academia that I want. I wanna come in and teach my class and go home, right? And what I think we need to do is, is continue to do a better job at highlighting all the different paths that people can take and valuing them equally because those paths bring different things to the table. And so that was the path that I chose, who knows where it all lead, but so far I'm pretty, I'm pretty satisfied with that. Thanks for sharing your journey mm -hmm. on that. I was just curious too, bringing it back to the documentary, what was it like to work with Henry Louis Gates Jr. <laughs> so, you know, these things are so fascinating to work on in general. And, and like I said, um, I had done appearances in some before, and this was my first time kind of coming in on the front end and being able to have some input on the story. And so I didn't get to work with Skip Gates directly because he's Skip Gates, but, um, what I witnessed was that because he is who he is, and you know, there are critiques to have about the actual documentary, and that's fine. I, I see it as the beginning of a conversation. And now that we have this four hour documentary, people can pull off pieces and go deeper into the themes that are presented. And I find value in that. Um, but because he is Skip Gates, you get the um, assembly of musicians and scholars that you get in that documentary. You get the range of perspectives um, that you hear and see in that documentary um, that I don't think happens without him at the masthead, right? Um, and so one of the things you ask about public facing work, 
one of the things that I've been really interested in about his career in general is how he has um, maintained a deep commitment to public uh, um, engagement as well as his scholarly engagement. Like, I remember when he came out with the website Africana, I think it was Africana.com, it preceded the root, right? Um, as, as trying to create a black corner of the internet for people to read about news and entertainment, things like that. And so I see when you look at a project like Finding Your Roots or the Black Church, to me, it is that through line for him that I do find inspirational, right? Um, finding many different ways to, because when we're talking about Black people's stuff, <laughs> one of the issues remains is it often goes unacknowledged, um, undeeply integrated into the narrative of how we think about America, right? And so even with the Black church, I feel like he's taking these things that people, if you're not Black or you didn't grow up in those traditions, you're aware of and putting them at the center, right? And even as someone who is Black, has a PhD in ethnomusicology, I still have to actively remind myself that we belong at the center too. Like the things that we create and value and participate in belong at the center too, right? Um, and so if, if there's anything I, I took from how he imagined that project, it was the mechanics of how one does that. And in that case, he put together, that was produced by um, a production team that he's a part of, right? McGee Film and Production. And so it is a team that has Black women who graduated from HBCUs involved. And so like that modeling of centering Black people and Black culture, it doesn't just show up on the screen, but happens behind the scenes as well. And so again, thinking holistically about what do we actually mean when we're talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, and how do I model that too? And so, um, and, and it got, working on that project got me thinking about, well, what stories do I wanna tell and how? Going back to the tenure question, I think technology and which is where we are in the world now allows each of us to think about what is the best medium for, for sharing what we're working on. I don't really want to, at this point, do a documentary on Shirley Graham Du Bois. I need to do a book about Shirley Graham Du Bois because I need to go through the process of working out in a very detailed way, those ideas about what I want to say about her, right? And so I think understanding what medium is best for what we want to share and at what point is something that we should likely talk more about and, and, and witnessing how he shepherded that documentary helped me to get that lesson. I, I've been thinking about that too, like how um, we place value in the book, mm -hmm. <laughs> like the, the, the monograph book, but we don't think about how these other mediums are equally useful and equally mm -hmm. important. And it's not always an either or, it can yeah. be, you know, the book and the article mm -hmm. and, right? It, it can be that as well, but I think we would do well to think more, um, pay more attention to how we're making those choices or 
Right. And I think that definitely ties into a lot of the conversations going on in ethnomusicology today about doing actual anti-colonial work and not just saying it's anti-colonial, but actually doing things that are not just writing a book about someone, but you're also doing things that are going to help give more context and more um, agency to the types of music in the communities that, that we're speaking about in our work. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something I've noticed because I'm studying American traditional music and it's that's been something that I've noticed through my conversations with my interlocutors has been, if it's not for the people that we're working with and helping advance the music and the culture, then what's the point of doing it at all? No, that's real. I remember realizing that in a fieldwork class, I was like, wait a minute. So we, we go someplace and we get all this information and um, we write our book, we get, you know, tenure, or we get a claim or whatever it is we're seeking. How is the community any better because we did all of this? You know, I think those questions of ethics and equity are, are central. Whatever I'm involved in, I do think deeply about, not just think about it, but find a way, like, what is the balance here? Like, how, what does that exchange look like, right? Because then it, it moves from extraction to exchange. And I know that lots of other ethnomusicologists are thinking about this as well, but that's, and I'm encouraged that that conversation is penetrating deeper in our discourse because, you know, being, again, being black, coming from a community from which so many things have been taken, I'm hypersensitive to what reciprocity needs to look like. This has been enjoyable and inspiring for thinking about the future and longevity of our careers. Yeah, this was fun. This was fun. Thank y'all for having me. Soundlore is an official production of the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology at Indiana University. Produced by David McDonald and Jeremy Reed. Music provided by Pagliopti and some other clowns. Engineered by Amanda Luke. Questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes? Leave us a message at 812-855-0396. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Soundlore on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. Thank you for listening.